This view presumes, as does the view associating the origin of Christmas, oh, there we go, on December 25th, with pagan celebrations of the winter solstice, that Christians appropriated pagan names and holidays for their highest festivals. Right? So this is just a normal entry there. Um, But then they go on to say, given the determination with which Christians combated all forms of paganism, the belief in multiple deities, uh, this appears a rather dubious presumption. So there's more to the article. But, you know, where does it come from? You know, that idea is out there. Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe someone's told you that, that these Christian holidays are merely uh, reappropriated pagan holidays. They're power moves by the church to force another culture into their beliefs. And so they say, well, we'll take their holidays and we'll change the name and kind of make them Christian and force our beliefs. Uh, Is Easter an invention of the early church to account for its own story and it's developed through the Middle Ages and on and on? Is that the origins of Easter? Where does it come from? So I want us to dig into that a little bit today and really root ourselves in the Easter story. Is, 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 is that, does it come, is it an invention of the church? Is it a reappropriation? Is it bigger than that? And so I'm going to argue that it's much, much bigger than that, like the Columbia River, right? You've seen the Columbia River? You've driven over the Columbia River? Anybody not seen the Columbia River? I'm kind of curious about that. Okay, Skyler, got to get you on a road trip. Okay. It looks like that. Uh, the Columbia River, let me give you some facts on this thing. It is, has an average flow of 7,500 meters cubed per second at the mouth. I don't know how much that would be, but that's a lot. 7,500 meters cubed, cubic meters per second are flowing out of that bad boy, okay? It's an enormous river. The Columbia River is the largest river by discharge of volume among all the rivers that flow into the Pacific Ocean from the Americas. And it's the fourth largest river by volume in the United States, okay? It drains, the Columbia River drains an area of 670,000 square kilometers, has the sixth largest drainage basin in the United States, and it comes. It covers parts of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, and the Canadian province of British Columbia. So the river doesn't, but its basin does. Meaning, there are all the rivers that flow into the Columbia River cover all those states. There are more than sixty significant tributaries that flow into the Columbia River. And a tribu- you know, tributary is something that's contributing to it. It's flowing into it. So the Columbia River is so massive, it has other huge rivers flowing into it. Rivers like the Snake River, the Pandoriel River, the Willamette River, the Kootenay River, the John Day River, the Deschutes River, the Kettle River, the Yakima River, the Lewis River, the Callitz River, and on and on. Huge rivers. You can go to these other rivers uh, we go every summer on a spot on the Deschutes River. It's a big river itself, and it's flowing into the Columbia River. So this is not a Washington State geography morning, but here's what I want us to think about. The Columbia River, this massive river, is really like the raging river, the story of God's salvation. It's flowing from before time 
through time. And Easter is that, it's the heartbeat of it all. Easter is when we celebrate the coming of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection for the salvation of humanity. That's the raging heart. It says, I didn't, I didn't get the reference on this, that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the earth. God's plan was in motion to redeem humanity before he ever even had a humanity. Right? He was ahead of it. Easter is the raging river. So it's, I want to show you today, it's not a late invention. It's not a European thing to overdo a pagan thing. It's what God has always been about. Is salvation and creating a people for himself. It's a huge flowing river through all time. That's the Easter and the story of salvation. And so what I want us to see in these weeks leading up to it is that the scriptures give us streams that flow into that river. So just like there's tributaries, right? Just like the Snake River flows into the Columbia River, I'm going to show you some streams from the scriptures that show that God's plan through all time was pointing to this Easter story. There's all these streams. And it's an attempt to show you that Easter is not a late invention. It's not an invention of the church. It's something God's been building to do. And there's all these streams that flow into it. So I'll show you that today. So we're going to do a little bit of jumping around. And some of you might go, oh, this feels like Old Testament class or something. But I want to root Easter in what God has been doing for all time. I want us to see that in the scripture. I want you to see, so if you come across or someone comes across this, oh yeah, Easter, that's just this European church controlling, taking over. Like, wait, wait, no, no, actually, it's God's story for all time. I want you to see that. I want you to know that. So here's where that comes from. In Luke 24, when Jesus had risen from the dead, he's walking with a couple guys. And they don't recognize him. This is famously called the road to Emmaus. And he's explaining to them the whole idea that Jesus had to die. Or the Christ had to die. So in Luke 24, 25, he said to them, these two guys, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Meaning be crucified. And here's the key line. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If ever there was a day for YouTube, that would have been the day. Just like, turn that on, Jesus is interpreting everything in the Bible about himself. But they didn't have YouTube. Right? Can you, so what does he say? And beginning with Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus. So basically, in, in the first five books of our Bible cover creation, where it, got, where it got started. So Jesus is saying all the scriptures, all the story that's recorded in the Bible, all the writings from God's creation to Jesus' present day in that moment tell about him. That's Jesus' witness. So he's not saying Easter in the story of God is not something invented by the early followers of Jesus to come up with a plan for where did he go. It's not something invented by the church in the Middle Ages to reappropriate pagan holidays. Jesus himself is saying, this goes back to what God's been doing all along, and all the scriptures tell that story. They're all rivers flowing into the main river of God's story. So I want to look at two of them today. We could do this for a year, right? We're not going to do it for a year, but we could. So, I mean, there's 
many, many, many rivers. Just like there's many, many things contributing to the Columbia, there's many, many rivers. I'm going to show you two, and just two spots. I'm going to show you the Genesis and the Zechariah rivers. I have no idea how the fishing is on those rivers, but I'd be game to find out. The Genesis and the Zechariah rivers. I just want to show you two streams that are contributing to the Easter story before it ever happened. Before there ever was a church. Before Jesus ever went to a cross. Before there ever was a Europe. Before any of that, well, the land was there, but you get the point. So I'm going to show you two streams of God's stories in time through history that get us to the Easter story. We can see it's rooted in God's plan. So the Genesis one. The Genesis one is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And the Genesis one is right in the beginning of time. God's created Adam and Eve, put them in a perfect garden, said, enjoy, eat, except one tree you can't eat from. And that very moment, right, I don't know about that very moment, but soon after, The tempter comes, the serpent comes, the evil one comes and tempts them, and they eat from the tree. And so it launches a whole blame game. Do you have that at your house? Well, I didn't break it. Well, he pushed me. Well, he threw the ball down the stairs, right? Adam's like, well, that woman you put here, she did it. And the woman's like, well, that serpent, he told me, and everyone's doing this. And so the Lord goes through a series of curses, And this is where we call the fall. This is the curse of humanity. This is where death enters. This is where everything changes. So in Genesis 3.14, God begins to pronounce a curse. Uh, He says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, tempted them, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the day of your life. So he curses the serpent. But then there's this little line in here. Genesis 3.15, this is like the the birthplace of all promises, the birthplace of what God's going to do. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So laid right in the middle of this cursing, God makes this promise. And it's kind of obscure, and it's a little bit unclear, but he basically says, There's going to be an ongoing hostility between the serpent, the evil one, and humanity, right? An enmity. But he makes this promise of bruising the head and biting his heel. It's really the image of like walking through a field and there's a snake and you're going to stomp it out, but it gets a bite in, right? You stomp its head, but it bites your heel. So you've got a wound. You're not dead, but he is. So here's, I'm going to go through this fast, I know, but here's the Genesis River. Here's this promise. Here's this almost like a trickle. It's not even a river, right? You know, somewhere way up in B.C., the Columbia River starts with probably like some little ice thing dripping. Way up there's a little trickle. He said there is going to be a human wounded conqueror. Did you see that? Right? He's uh, human, right? Her offspring. So it's the offspring of the woman. He's going to be wounded, right? You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to conquer. He's going to crush the head. So we just have this stream. It's just flowing right from the beginning. We're in chapter 3 of the Bible, right? The stream, a human wounded conqueror. And so that's just there. It's flowing. When's this going to happen? How's it going to look? What does this even mean? Just hold on to that. Keep the Genesis River in your head, at least that part of it. Now I want to jump over to the Zechariah River. All right, so we're jumping way forward in time. I told you I'm jumping a little bit today, but I just want to show you these spots. 
Zechariah is prophesying in the 520 BCs and going towards 500 and probably even past. Remember, you're counting backwards in those times. So Zechariah, he's a prophet. I'm going to show you this. You can turn to the book of Zechariah. We're going to get in Zechariah 12 if you want to get there. But in Zechariah 1.1, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. So in Zechariah's day, what's happened is God's people... Israel, and actually the land of Judah and Jerusalem, were conquered by Babylon, and they were carried off to exile, and they were there for 70 years, which is exactly what God promised would happen. And then at the end of 70 years, a new king takes over, actually a whole new empire, the Persians, with King Cyrus, says, you can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So you can read all that. If you want to know about that, you can read that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They talk about going back and rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the temple. Well, Zechariah is a prophet during that time. So it's in the 500s, even into the 400s, where you got Darius. You get kings listed like Artaxerxes and Xerxes, these different Persian kings. So that's the time period. That's what's happening. They're back in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding a city that was destroyed because of their unfaithfulness. That's the, that's the time period. And so the book of Zechariah opens, says, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. I was so angry he let the Babylonians come in and destroy him. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Always with God a promise of come back. Return. Come back. So I want to see this specific river in Chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Zechariah. I'm going to show you this. Chapter 12 of Zechariah. I want to show you verse 1 so you know who the speaker is, and then we're going to jump down to verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord. So who's talking? The Lord, through Zechariah, but he's talking, first person, the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So in Zechariah chapter 12, God is the speaker through the prophet. I'm speaking, he's the only one that can say, I stretched out the heavens, I formed man. So he's the speaker. I'm skipping a couple parts where he talks about what he's going to do uh, with Jerusalem in the future. You can, re- you can read that if you want, but I want us to go down to verse 10. So I'm specifically looking at these rivers that feed the Easter River. Zechariah 12, verse 10, God's the speaker. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep over him bitterly as one weeps over a firstborn. So do you see that? Let me go back and look at that again. I will, I will pour out the Spirit of grace verse, so that when they look on me, who's the speaker? God, Yahweh, the Lord. When they look on me, on him, So you go, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. What's that mean? On me, but on him whom they have pierced, they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. Okay, and then go down and it goes on to describe all the weeping and the weeping and who's weeping and a lot of weeping. 
And then you get down to chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So let me show you this. The Zechariah River. It involves God himself, right? Didn't he say, I? They will look on me. First person. Pierced. That causes great mourning and brings a cleansing. Right? Do we see those little those details flowing there? So you've got two rivers happening, right? You've got God saying there's going to be a human wounded conqueror. You've got Zechariah saying God himself is involved, that someone is pierced, that brings great mourning and cleansing. These are just rivers flowing. This is 500 years before Jesus is on the earth. Rivers flowing. Are these going to land somewhere? Where do these go? So I want to show you. This is right, we get this from the Christmas story, right? We're looking for a human who's God himself. In Luke 31, 31, when an angel visits a young lady named Mary, he's talking to her and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. What did, that, what did that say in Genesis? The offspring of who? The woman. And here's a woman. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here we have human, but we have God. Right? We have those two things flowing. We have human, born of the woman, just like they said to the woman in the garden, her offspring. Now we have her offspring, but also the Son of God. So you see these pieces starting to come together in the identity of Jesus. And then he specifically said, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. I want to read a longer section of... John chapter 19, because you're going to see multiple of these little points popping out. The identity of Jesus, who he really is. So it's in John chapter 19. So if you're good, you can keep a finger there in uh, Zechariah 12, but jump over to John 19. Sorry, Eric, I'm giving away the ending to your class. If you're in the John class, pretend you didn't know this part. Okay. John 19, verse 1. John 19, verse 1. I want you to see some of these streams coming together. Because remember, we're looking, where does this whole Easter thing come from? I want you to see these streams coming together. The Genesis River, the Zechariah River. Then Pilate took Jesus, Pilate's the governor, and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Okay, he's innocent, right? No, no charges, no condemnation. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. There's a second declaration of innocence. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. I find that interesting here. The enemies of Jesus recognize his claim. Right? Now, they don't think he's the Son of God, but they're very clear that that's what he's claiming to be. See how these streams are coming together? Zechariah River said what? On me. Right? The Son of God, who is God. Even the enemies of Jesus acknowledge that's his claim. They doubt that he is, but they acknowledge it. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He's like, whoa, I thought I just had a petty thief here. Well, I didn't know we were talking about deity. What's going on? He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate's like, don't you know who I am? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is like, don't you know who I am? Right? <laughs> we can play this authority game, Pilate. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So there in this trial, Jesus is declared innocent, but they recognize the claim that he is the Son of God. He's God. Let's jump down to verse 16. Jump to verse 16. So... They took G- oh, the sea. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, right? nailed him to a wooden cross, through his arms, through his feet, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Let's go down to verse 31. I'm not looking at all the details today, but down to verse 31. Jesus is there. He's cried out. He's gave up his spirit. In verse 31, it tells us, since it was the day of preparation, meaning the preparation for the Sabbath, the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Basically, they didn't want to be not allowed to participate in the Sabbath if they handled a dead body, so let's get these off the cross so we can be clean and participate and so on. So so the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Because the crucifixion is actually a slow suffocation. So they could push up on their leg and get air and then sloop back down. And this would go on sometimes for days. So if they broke their legs, they couldn't push up anymore and you died quicker. That's what's going on there. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. Our writer John saw this. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken, or will be broken, and another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And that takes us back to Zechariah, right? So that they look on me. What did the enemies recognize? Son of God, co-equal with God, on him, Jesus the Son, whom they pierced. 
with the spear. You see that? This is the Zechariah River flowing in. This quote, 500 years before. And then it goes on to say, and they'll mourn, right? The Zechariah River tells us they'll be mourning as for an only child and weep bitterly. Do we find that? Do we find that? It says, on that day, the morning, it just goes on and on about how great the morning will be. It likens it to the morning when King Josiah was killed, this great reforming king. There was mourning in Jerusalem. It says, it's going to be like that. It's going to be terrible. If you go to Luke's account, we're going to see, do we find this description of mourning? Luke says it was about the sixth hour, so that's noon, and there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So there's three hours of an eclipse. Well, it says while the sun's light failed. That would freak you out, wouldn't it? That's a long time. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And that all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. There's your mourning, right? This was horrible. What just happened here? And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So there it is, right? Mourning. It says everybody who saw it went home beating their breasts. This is terrible. That's what we saw in Zechariah. Okay, one more thing. Zechariah 13.1, right? We're looking at the Zechariah River. All the pieces in Zechariah 13.1. He says, on that day, the day when they look on him whom they've pierced, right? On that day, when they, when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, after the morning there will be open a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Okay, I want to look at this last piece of this river here. So again, we're back in Luke 24. This is Jesus with his disciples. He showed back up. They're in the room. He just appears in the room, resurrected alive in Luke 24, 44. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So again, Jesus witnesses. God's been telling this story all along, this, this Easter salvation river. It's all got to happen. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day rise from the dead. We just saw the suffering, right? Here he's risen. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Didn't we just read that in Zechariah 13.1? On that day there'll be opened a fountain for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them. And Jesus says, beginning in Jerusalem, there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's that peace. So I just want to show you these streams. The Genesis River, a human wounded conqueror. Jesus is born of Mary, born as a woman. He's definitely wounded on the cross, but he's raised to life. He defeats the power of sin and death. That's from the beginning of the Bible, right? The Zechariah River. That it's God himself pierced with great mourning and then it offers cleansing. 
right? The very the witness of Jesus' enemies was that he was claiming to be God. Right? Not even his own his enemies knew that's what he was saying. They knew it. When Pilate heard that word, he panicked. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, who are you? So it was God Himself pierced. We have John's testimony that a spear went right between the ribs, didn't even break a rib, just right into there, hit the sack around your heart, blood and water flowed. We read the great morning, right? The people beating their breasts, leaving the scene, and that Jesus' announcement was cleansing that was promised to begin in Jerusalem, began in Jerusalem. And so that's, I just wanted to show us that today. <laughs> this Easter river, we are cleansed by God, the wounded, conquering healer. This is not a late invention of the church. This is not a reappropriation of some other pagan things. This is not a power grab. This is the thing God has been saying he would do from the moment <laughs> he even thought of it, right? This is the moment humanity failed. He said, I'm going to send a human deliverer who's me. And he just keeps saying it, right? There's a big jump between Genesis and Zechariah. He just keeps saying it. So there's one more part I want to show you. It was right at the beginning. I glossed over it back in Zechariah 12, verse 10. He said, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. So he says, this is what he says is going to accompany it. The Spirit will be poured out that causes people to turn and ask for repentance. Right? That's what he says. The Spirit, I'm going to pour out a Spirit of grace, right? Undeserved favor and pleas for mercy. He's going to pour this thing out so that people will want to respond to this. So the Spirit is promised right here. In Acts chapter 2, the first thing, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, this big crowd gathers and Peter stands up and preaches this whole sermon about the death and resurrection of Jesus as we're witnesses to it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter, his final sentence is, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were, that's the spirit of grace in their life and they have a plea for mercy. What do we do? We just realized that Jesus was crucified. We just realized that our people have been part of it. We've just realized that the Son of God was crucified and rose again. And when you're cut to the heart, that's the Spirit's work of grace awakening you. And then you go, oh no, I need mercy because I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. And there it is. That's, right what, that's exactly what happened. The Spirit of grace and pleas of mercy came out. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We're in that promise. We're going to celebrate Easter in that same promise, that that story is for us a couple thousand years after the event. So this is the Easter River. We're cleansed, right? We're not celebrating some weird reappropriated holiday. We are celebrating that we are cleansed by God, 
the wounded, conquering healer who's fulfilled every one of these streams of scriptures. I just showed you two today. There's many more. We're going to look at some more next week. But I just want us to realize this. This is God's salvation story. This is the message I want you to be confident in. It's not something made up. It's not something from the Middle Ages. It's not a power grab. It's God's story. I want you to be ready to to share that with these. Hey, I want you to know about the story of God at Easter to save you. I want you to feel confident in that. And I want people to respond. Even today, you could be sitting here and going, I'm feeling the conviction of the Spirit. I need to respond. I need to repent and be baptized. Maybe that's you today. And you say, yeah, I I need to turn to Jesus. And that's what happened in Acts. You can be cleansed. You can be forgiven. You can enter into God's family today, today. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you 